chapter 15. Just a few moments, we're going to dive into this entire chapter. Now, admittedly, since we're dealing with an entire chapter, we'll be doing kind of a, an overview of it. So be aware that each of these parables could be broken down in depth. But because of our emphasis on who's your one in evangelism, we're going to get a bird's eye view this morning of Luke 15. And I want to encourage you that the Lord is already at work in this emphasis. I received an email earlier this week. It was an email from David and Pat Boshears. Now, David and Pat are members of Trinity. They attend the 8.30 service, but they winter in Florida. Uh, and they emailed me, and by permission, I share with you what they wrote. Greetings from the Sunshine State. We stream our 8.30 service each week. It turns out that Pat and I both had chosen our grandson, A.J., as the person we were praying for to make a profession of faith as per your request for Easter. This past weekend, he made that profession at Ridgecrest in Black Mountain on a youth retreat with Sulphur Springs Baptist. We were thrilled to find that out, find that out after special prayer for him the past several weeks. Love to all from David and Pat. Be encouraged. Amen. Already the Lord is at work. Now, the Lord chose to answer that prayer immediately. He may not answer your prayer immediately in that fashion. It doesn't mean that He won't, but I want us to be encouraged because right now we're really at the point of praying. We're like the farmer right now, just kind of tilling the ground, getting it prepared for sharing the gospel, asking God to go before us. And understand that as we ask God to seek and to save the lost, He hears that prayer because that's His heartbeat. We've already read this morning that Jesus came for the very purpose of seeking and saving the lost. We've read about our Lord, and according to 2 Peter, who doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We see this emphasis in Luke chapter 15. A certain problem has, has arisen. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him to Jesus to hear him. Now notice how there's two divisions here. You have sinners that we understand very well, but then tax collectors. This is a very special group of sinners in the eyes of the religious leaders. The tax collectors were those who had sided with the Roman government. They had turned traitor to Israel and were helping the enemy, the Roman government, collect taxes. So you have two distinct groups who are considered outcast tax collectors and sinners. And then here's the problem. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Got to say it like that. They grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You can feel the disgust. The repulsion they feel in their self-righteous spirits over what Jesus is doing. Not only is Jesus going out and meeting these tax collectors and, and sinners. He's befriending them. He's actually 
He's actually sitting down and eating with them. Can you believe that? He's meeting them where they are. Oh, that's the Pharisees and the scribes. So what does Jesus do? He confronts them on this issue. Notice in verse 3. So he told them this parable. It's very interesting. He uses this. Even though there are three parables that he tells. He doesn't say he told them these parables. He says this parable. So apparently the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the prodigal son really are considered one parable with one main point. That's what I want us to see this morning. What is this lost sheep, this lost coin, and these, these lost sons? That's right, lost sons. Because it's really more about more than just the one who left. But we'll get to that more a little bit later. You see, to understand the point that these parables are making as Jesus confronts the, the arrogance of the religious leaders, we have to see what they hold in common. And the first thing we see about these three parables is that something of value is lost. In verses 4 through 7, a sheep is lost. Verses 8 through 10, a coin is missing. And then finally in verses 11 through 31, we hear about this father who has two lost sons. And you'll notice the way that the the parable is laid out. There's an increase in value, an increase in the urgency. Because notice what we read in verse 3. What man of you having a hundred sheep? If he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that one is lost until he finds it. Now, admittedly, math is not my strong point. I'm mathematically challenged in many ways. But I do believe that 1 out of 100 means 1%. 1% of this man's flock is missing. 1%. But now notice how the next part of this parable ramps that up a little bit. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, one out of ten, ten percent. She's lost ten percent. And now we get to the final part of this, this man with two sons that are lost. A hundred percent. You see this this increase of the stakes with each parable. 1% is missing. 1% doesn't come back. Okay, you still got 99%. 10% a little bit more. And then you're finally dealing with both of your sons that are lost. And the point that Jesus is making to the the Pharisees and the scribes and to us is that these tax collectors and sinners that Jesus is eating with are valuable. They have worth. They're not throwaway people that are to be ignored. They're not to be those people that we see, but we really unsee because we ignore them. People are valuable to God. Our government debates how much people are worth. may not be aware of that. There was an article several years back in the New York Times about how the the Bureau of Office Management and Budget told agencies that they should work to determine how much a human life is worth to give guidance in expenditures that should take place to save a life. Now, the office told them that they should pick a number between 1 million and 10 million, but if they picked a value less than 5 million, well, they were just way off because the human life is certainly worth more than $5 million. 
So according to this article, agencies began to respond. The Environmental Protection Agency said that the value of a human life is $9.1 million. The Food and Drug Administration declared that a life is worth $7.9 million. Now that's an improvement. Several years earlier they had said $5 million. The Transportation Department determined that one life is worth $6 million. That's what our government says. What does God say? How much is your life worth to God? How much is a life of anyone worth to God? Well, we find in the Scripture that Jesus died for the ungodly. How much is a life worth to God? A life is worth the value of His own Son dying upon the cross. In that same passage, Paul said that a person may die for a good man, but Jesus gave His life for the ungodly, for all. For the meth addict and the businessman, Jesus died. For the homeless and the holier than thou, Jesus died upon the cross. For the atheist and the arrogant, Jesus died upon the cross. And such is the value of humanity to God that He made a great search. That's the other common theme. Not only is something lost... But a great search is made. Notice in the first parable, Jesus says, What man of you, when he finds his sheep, this is in verse 5, lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say the shepherd went out to find the sheep. The owner did. We know that because, first of all, he uses the word, what man among you. And then this person who finds the sheep is of such resources, he calls his neighbors and he throws a party. A lowly shepherd would not have the ability to do that. Jesus is very subtly making this point that this 1%, this one sheep that was lost, was so valuable to the owner that he made search for it, going out into the forest land and into the shrub areas around to find this sheep. Notice the woman. What does she do? She does not light a lamp. If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. When this coin is lost, this is not some lighthearted search of, well, just lift up the cushions on the couch and see if it's there. The language is this. She tears the house apart. Get the, get the stuff out. We've got to find this coin. This is 10% of what I own. Which leads us to the final part of the parable. How does his father seek his sons? It's very clear in the first two. The owner goes out. The woman tears apart the house. But this father never leaves his home. So how is he seeking? To understand how the father was seeking his sons, we have to understand a Jewish ceremony called the Kesatza. This is a ceremony where the whole village would have responded to this son's actions. You see, when the son came to his father in verse 12, and he said, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, that is an insult to the father. That's like saying, I wish you were dead. Now, give me what is mine. And then you'll notice that this young man goes into a far country, and what does he do? He spent everything. In fact, verse 13 says he squandered his property in reckless living. The implication is that he took the deed to the property he owned and he lost it gambling so that now someone outside of the community owns property within that community. And to a tight-knit Jewish group, this would have been anathema. 
since the whole community was involved in his son's actions, they would have employed the Ketsatsa ceremony. When the son came back, if he came back, one or two things would happen. This reprobate son would have been met by a group of community leaders and told to get back out of town to never come back because he had dishonored his family and he had dishonored the community. Or at worst, he would have been killed by stoning. So what does the father do? He intervenes. Notice what happens. It says that the father is looking for him. You'll see this over in verse, verse 20. The father saw him while he was still a long way off. The father knows that if his son returns and he doesn't intervene, he'll probably die. So what does the father do? He's looking every day. He's scanning the horizon so he can intervene and save his son from death. He is watching. And then notice, if it, if it needs to get any more poignant, look what happens. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. Understand that the patriarchs of Jewish family do not run. Grandpappy don't run for anybody. And here's this dad that gets so excited when he sees his son coming. He picks up his robes and he runs and he embraces and he kisses him. He's been seeking his son all the while. And if we carry this imagery further, we recognize that it is God being portrayed in each instance. God is the owner seeking the sheep. God is the woman seeking the lost coin. God is the father looking out to save his son from death. He's reaching out to us. Understand that every person that comes to Christ comes to Christ because God sought them. We may be the instruments God uses to share the gospel, but salvation is a work of God. And the testimony of every believer is found in the words of the old hymn, He sought me. He bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him. And all my love is due Him. See, the interesting thing is how this father intervenes representing God. You notice this son, when he had hit rock bottom, and I mean, what we read in, in this parable, he had hit as low as a Jewish boy could hit. He's living with the pigs. He's eating the slop given to pigs. And so, notice what happens. In verse 17, he comes to his senses. He says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to talk to dad. And he begins to rehearse this speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And you can hear, see him in your mind repeating this, rehearsing it. This is what I'm going to say to dad. This is what I'm going to say to dad. And then look what happens in verse 21. He's being hugged and embraced by his daddy. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, and the language shows that the dad interrupted him. The son never got to finish his speech. The dad was so quick to forgive. It's like you don't have to say anything else. You are home. I welcome you. Come in. Our God is a God who seeks the lost. So shouldn't we? We represent God to those who do not know Him as we seek those who need to be saved. Desmond Doss of Lynchburg, Virginia carries a very unique role, place in American history, American military history to be exact. Desmond Doss is the only conscientious objector to be awarded the Medal of Honor. 
You see, when World War II broke out, when war was declared, Desmond wanted to serve his country. But the problem was is that he was a pacifist. He didn't want to carry a weapon into combat. So they were able to strike a middle ground. He became a medic, unarmed, but would work to serve his country by serving and trying to save soldiers. The movie Hacksaw Ridge tells his story. He was part of the marine groups that were going island to island in the South Pacific. And one island, the Japanese had entrenched on top of a cliff. And they had, the marines had to take that cliff in order to get the island. The marines began their assault, climbing the cliff. And once they got on top, after a while they started moving inland, but were met by heavy Japanese resistance. So much so, the Japanese won the battle. And hundreds of American marines were caught behind enemy lines including Desmond Doss. Desmond began making his way on his belly under cover of night to each foxhole looking for wounded. And when he found a wounded soldier, he would pick him up and literally drag him back to the edge of a cliff, tie a rope around him, and then lure him down to the Marine camp at the foot of the cliff. Desmond Doss saved 75 soldiers doing this. And it was said that as he was making his way under cover of night, he was saying these words, Lord, help me save one more. Lord, help me save one more. As we cry out to God, let that be our cry. Lord, help us to witness to one more. Help us to share the gospel with one more. And you're wondering, how do I do that? I want to give you just another example. This one via videotape. Videotape, I'm old. Um, on the screens from James Merritt, a pastor. It's just a reminder, engaging in that discussion upon the screen, hear this testimony from James Merritt. His name was Michael, and uh, Michael's father died of alcoholism and uh, came from a really bad situation. And so uh, I got to talking to Michael, and I just said, Michael, do you mind if we talk about spiritual things? And he said, no, I really would love to. And I said, um, what are your basic spiritual beliefs? He told me he believed in God and kind of the general things that you hear. And I just said, can I just share with you the best news I've ever heard in my life? And he said, I'd love to hear it. And I just shared with him four things. The bad news, we're all sinners, separated from God. The worst news, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. The good news, Jesus did for us what we can't do for ourselves when he died for, for us on the cross and came back from the grave. And the best news, he purchased the free gift of eternal life, and all we have to do is accept it. He prayed to receive Christ that minute. The next Sunday, got up on the platform with me so I could introduce him to our church, and then later on we baptized him. It's not that hard. It's real simple. It's the best news anybody will ever hear in their life. We just need to tell it. Leave the results to God. Who's your one? Once again, I realize that that may not be the exact way it plays out with you and your discussion. And that's why I want to encourage you. Don't be discouraged. I want to encourage you with the person God has laid on your heart just to get to know them. Remember, they're a person, not a project. Reach out to them. Listen to them. Take them out for coffee or lunch and ask questions. Get to know them. Hear them. Gain the right to, to share with them your story. Ask them questions and trust God for the right time to share the gospel. And when we do, there will be joy in heaven.
You see, a, a third common theme in these, this parable is that of joy. Because look what happens when the, the owner gets back with the sheep. He says, rejoice with me, I found my sheep that was lost. When the woman finds the lost coin, she calls her neighbors in verse 9. Rejoice with me. And the father prepares a, a banquet. And Jesus shows clearly. He says in verse 7, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need repentance. Verse 10, so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is joy in heaven when a person comes. And as we as a congregation engage in sharing the gospel, you'll find that our joy as the people of God will increase. If we want to magnify the joy of heaven, witness to the lost. And if we want to share in that joy, we must witness to the lost. Then our joy will be magnified because our hearts are invested. I know I used a, an, an illustration last week from basketball, but it's March Madness, so I want to do it again. One of the things that always moves me is the emotion of the players. At the end of a game, one team is crying and the other team is excited. I heard a coach express it last night. His team had been defeated. And he said, these guys, they put their heart and soul into this. So whenever it ends, there is an emotion. Some of that emotion is sadness, but some of that emotion is, woo! Yes! Excitement! There will be joy in a congregation that seeks to glorify God in sharing the gospel. There's joy in heaven. I believe even when the gospel is shared and certainly when everyone is saved. And that's the choice before us. And remember I said the final part of the parable is really about both sons. We're very familiar with the prodigal. The one who left and came home, but it's the older son who I think is really the main point. The older son is upset. Notice verse 25. His older son was in the field. He came and drew near the house. Called a servant. What's going on? And the servant says, Your brother's come, come home. Your father's killed the fatted calf because he's received him back in self, safe and sound. But verse 28. He was angry and refused to go in. Remember how this started. When you look back to verse, one, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled. The older brother's grumbling. It's not fair. He's, he, he was a reprobate. He, Dad, how can you do this? You see, the older brother, the older brother's the Pharisees, the scribes. But you notice the father seeks them too. Look at the end of verse 28. His father came out and entreated him. The father sought him. But what you'll notice in this parable, it ends. We don't know how the older brother responded. It's left open-ended. Will the scribes and Pharisees recognize the value of the lost and have joy? Perhaps the better question is for us. How will we respond? How will we respond to God's graciousness? How do we respond to those who do not know Him? Are we excited about the opportunity God's placing before us? It's open-ended for a reason. That's the point of this parable. A lost sheep, a lost coin, 
lost sons. Joy when they're found. Will we be an older brother? Or will we be like the father? Seeking. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me if you will. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. The altar is open as always. As I'd said in this, I don't want anyone to do anything out of a sense of guilt, but just to see the joy of God, experience the joy of God when we become a part of the mission He is on of seeking and saving the lost. This morning you may feel led by the Spirit to come and pray. It may be for the person that that the Lord has laid on your heart. Or it may be just praying, Lord, change my heart. Father, let me be like you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the God who seeks. Father, you, you seek us even when we're not worthy to be found. And Lord, you're seeking us even when we are not aware. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a part of that mission. You've called us to carry the gospel. The work is yours, Lord. We can't save anyone. Lord, we know that we are the instruments you will use to write your message on the hearts and minds of others. So Lord, work through us that we will see the value of one. In Jesus' name. Amen.